all those houses as collateral. The HOLC became a major force in the world of mortgage lending. Also, loans weren't due to be paid off for 15 years, so that was, again, as Tracy said, much longer than the three to five years that had been common up to this point, and much closer to the way mortgages continue to work today. So the government had some concerns about making sure that the homes that it held as collateral were worth the money that was owed on them. These concerns were legitimate, thanks to defaults on the refinanced mortgages and voluntary surrenders from people who were facing default. The HOLC owned more than 200,000 houses by 1937. In the interest of protecting its investment, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, which is above the HOLC in the federal chain of command, asked it to evaluate trends in homeownership in American cities. As a result, the HOLC launched the City Survey Program in 1935. It worked with lenders and real estate agents in order to assess more than 200 major U.S. cities, evaluate the neighborhoods, and make color-coded graded maps documenting each neighborhood's desirability. To do this, assessors all over the United States looked at all kinds of factors for each community. Now keep in mind this was 1935. The communities that they were looking at were heavily segregated, and race definitely played a factor in these assessments. So kind of wrap up what we've talked about so far. The government was wanting to uh, protect its investments in all of these houses that it was refinancing, and to that end, put a bunch of people to work making maps to make sure that the neighborhoods were appropriate. We're gonna talk about how those maps were created after a brief sponsor break. So, you know, I, I have the this huge privilege of mostly working at home most of the time, and and sometimes, uh, Patrick will come home and say, did you work in your pajamas? And my answer is always, no, these are not pajamas. They have pockets in them. Therefore, they are pants. <laughs> yeah, which is why today I am so excited to announce that MeUndies.com now has lounge pants. They have pockets in them, so in fact they are pants, and I can wear them to work, which is amazing because they're wonderful. I actually did wear mine to work. <laughs> I threw a dress on over it, but uh -huh. I had to come in. I had to come in on Saturday to do an interview, and so I rolled out of bed and I kind of, you know, got marginally presentable, and then I just threw a black dress on over my lounge pants, and they were amazing. And people told me they were cute. So yeah, when they are quite cute. They are extremely comfortable. They are the latest thing that you can get for MeUndies.com, which also has, as the name suggests, undies. Also, t-shirts. We have also talked about being incredibly incredibly comfortable basically uh the latest thing we are excited about we are mostly excited about because they're brand new and we literally just got them the other day <laughs> so you too can see the glory that is uh these fantastic lounge pants you go to meundies.com slash history that is meundies.com slash history you will get 20 percent off your first order and free shipping one more time that's meundies.com slash history Check out the, the lounge pants. If they're not for you, maybe the t-shirts or the great underwear is. So one more time, meundies.com slash history for 20% off and free shipping. And now we'll get back to our story. So whenever we talk about segregation as it persists today, people point out that folks like to live around people who are similar to them. So it's easy to see why immigrants from one particular nation might, for example, all settle in the same neighborhood or why neighborhoods can diverge from one another along racial lines. And this is true, 
It's also simultaneously true that for roughly a century after the abolition of slavery, neighborhood segregation was legally enforced. Regardless of whether people wanted to live near other people who were similar to them, the law made it next to impossible to live anywhere else. For a lot of social and economic reasons, a lot of those patterns that used to be legally enforced still exist today, even though segregation itself is illegal. Originally, racially specific zoning laws were used to enforce neighborhood segregation. Cities and states would have zoning laws that specified, for example, that a black person couldn't live in a majority white neighborhood. But in 1917, zoning based on race was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. This decision was called Buchanan versus Worley. Worley, a black man from Louisville, Kentucky, had bought a house from Buchanan, a white man. However, Louisville's zoning laws prevented a black person from living on a block where the majority of the residents were white, and this was the case on Buchanan's block. The Supreme Court ruled that this was unconstitutional. However, the decision applied only to legal statutes. It did not pertain to private agreements or to issues that were not enforced by the states. This led to two changes. First, the zoning laws themselves were revised so that instead of specifying what race could live where, they prevented the construction of smaller, affordable homes that lower-income families, most of whom were black or another racial or ethnic minority, could afford to buy. And racially restrictive covenants, especially in majority white neighborhoods, took the place of zoning to keep the neighborhoods explicitly segregated. So to explain what that actually is, uh, racially restrictive covenants were clauses in the deeds to people's homes, primarily in white neighborhoods, that prevented white homeowners from selling their property to black buyers. African Americans are not the only people who have been targeted by racially restrictive covenants, but they were the most common inclusion, and they're what's relevant to what we're talking about in these episodes. Although racially restrictive covenants are illegal today, they do still exist in some deeds from properties that have been passed down through inheritance rather than having been resold. So when the city survey program started, the assessors were going into deeply segregated neighborhoods to document everything about them, including the races and ethnicities of people who were living there. But it started with stuff that was a lot more basic than that. The first thing was to describe the terrain. The instruction said, quote, describe or give word picture of, uh, quote, lay of the land, i.e. level, rolling, hilly. Mention physical features like slopes, bluffs, fills, gullies, streams. From there, assessors described favorable and unfavorable influences. Favorable influences might be parks, good schools, churches, recreation centers, good traffic, and various nice amenities that a neighborhood might have. Detrimental influences might be uh, traffic that is not good, noise, graffiti, proximity to manufacturing facilities or slaughterhouses, the presence of apartments, flood risk, and to quote from the instructions, quote, infiltrations of lower grade population or different racial groups. Then assessors looked at the types of dwellings in the neighborhood, who lived there, what they did for a living, how much money they made, how the population was or wasn't shifting include, to include more minorities, whether people owned or rented. It really went on and on. And after assessing all these factors with all these elements, a lot of which really are pretty objective and related to whether a neighborhood might be considered a nice neighborhood, 
all that data would go into a map. And the map would sort each neighborhood into four categories. And those categories were best, still desirable, definitely declining, and hazardous. The hazardous neighborhoods, almost 100% of the time, had one thing in common. Regardless of what its buildings were like, how much money its residents made, what they did for a living, or anything else, almost always, their residents were predominantly black. So, in the 1930s, the City Survey Program, which was a project of the United States federal government, was creating maps of all of the nation's major cities and color-coding all the places where black people lived as hazardous. Which is where we are going to pause this episode. Next time, we're going to talk about some specific examples from these maps, how and where the maps were used, and how the practice of redlining, which these maps either started or simply documented, depending on who you ask, still exists today. Tracy, do you also have a little bit of listener mail that's maybe not quite so uh, intense? Well, I do, and it's, it's, not, it's not quite so intense. I have first, I'm going to call this an anti-correction. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have gotten so many emails about this that I feel like, I feel compelled to clarify, even though the emails that we've been getting are not correct. So in our child migrant program episode, we read from Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's apology speech to the child migrants. And this was an apology for them having been uh, removed from the settings that were familiar to them and then denied appropriate care once they got to Australia. We've gotten quite a few letters from people telling us that that apology was not for the child migrant program, but it was for the stolen generation, which were Aboriginal children who were taken from their homes and put into residential schools to try to force them to assimilate into white society. So those were two different speeches, both of them delivered by Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. We've gotten a whole bunch of emails from people who have said, that apology didn't have anything to do with the child migrant program. I double checked. We definitely read from the child migrant program uh, apology speech and the uh, the stolen generation apology speech was a separate thing also delivered by Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. So thanks to all the folks who have written in, I definitely double checked. There were definitely two different speeches. So that's thing one. Thing two is an actual correction. It's from David on our Facebook. And he says, in the last episode, at least until yesterday that I think, he said that Mexico obtained its independence in 1821. Although the quote is not totally biased, the Mexican War of Independence ended on September 27, 1821. I doubt you will characterize the United States obtained its independence in 1873, as the Revolutionary War ended September 3rd of that year. No, the U.S. independence is counted from the day it was declared, July 4th, 1776. With the same tone, I would urge you to mention that Mexico obtained its independence in 1810, as independence was declared on September 16th, 1810. And that was from David, and I'm not completely sure whether that one was related to our Pastry War episode or our Battle of, uh, or our Siege of Behar episode. It could have been either. But that's a valid point that I had not thought about at all. Yeah. Um, and I have a feeling we have said that about other nations as well, that they obtained their uh, independence on a particular date. But generally, like the day that's considered to be the, the nation's 
uh, origin is the day that independence was declared if you know the, the if the war that often follows that uh ended in the new nation's favor i had never thought of that before so thank you for your note david um if you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissinHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History and on Instagram at History. If you would like to go to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, you will find all sorts of information about the mortgage industry that exists today and all of the various tax and legal things that come along with buying a house. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes for this and all of our other episodes, lots of cool links, an archive of episodes, every episode that we've ever done. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month, we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and My guest today is Todd Leventhal. Todd Leventhal is with the International Information Program with the Department of State. And as such, uh, he is not a member of the intelligence community. But interestingly, he has dealt quite a bit in his career with countering, if you will, uh, Soviet active measures programs and other programs which deliberately spread distorted stories or disinformation, if you will, about America and about the United States and its involvement in many affairs. So I would like to just have him discuss a little bit uh, the nature of what he does, and then I would like him to address some of the specific, specific stories he's dealt with, uh, such as 9-11, in which there have been so many distorted rumors put out about America and about the actual causes of 9-11. Just let me ask you, Todd, Tell me something about your past involvement in countering Soviet active measures. Sure. I uh, started that job in 1987 with the U.S. Information Agency, which is now part of the State Department, uh, but it, at that time it was an independent agency. And we had, I was part of a small office, two or three people that worked getting information from our embassies overseas about what was in the press in their countries, and also we'd see what was in the, the Soviet press lies about America that we wanted to counter. So our job was to research any allegations, research anything we didn't know what the facts were, find out what the, what the real story was, get that out to our embassies, and also talk to the press if they had an interest in these stories as well to get the word out directly. We did that in cooperation with people at State Department and uh, other agencies throughout the government. Now, you, you mentioned that, that uh, you would look at the Soviet press. A lot of the distorted or d information or disinformation is actually put out covertly. In 
other words, it may not appear in their regular press. They they may surface the story in one country and then That's right. uh, you know, peddle it in another. A classic example is AIDS disinformation. This was a campaign started in 1983. It started with a covert media placement in India. The paper name there named, uh, known as the Patriot, English language paper set up by KGB. And it ran a story in 83 saying AIDS was created by the Pentagon as part of their biological warfare experiments. Um, totally untrue, but a sensationalistic allegation that gets a lot of people's attention. Now later on, it was, in this case actually it was quite odd, but eventually this surfaced in the Soviet press in Literaturnai Gazeta, which happened a two-year gap back in uh, 85, and then it was, of course, it's reported by TASS, the Soviet news service, and Novosti, their unofficial news service, which spread the, the rumor worldwide. So if you had, for example, and the, the black, the covert, and the white can work together in this case, and you might have a case, uh, an example where, say, uh, someone working in a Mexican newspaper gets uh, his KGB uh, handler, says to him, I want you to plant this story in, the, uh, in your paper about AIDS being created by the Pentagon. Where am I going to say I got it? Well, here's a Novosti press release from just last week. You can quote Novosti. That's your source. Here's your money. And then that's how it works. The black and the white work together. The, the fine. Now, I know your primary focus was Soviet that's disinformation. Right. Mm -hmm. Were you also dealing with disinformation created by other, other kinds of programs in other countries? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one case was the shutdown of Tehran 106. This happened in 1988. This was over Lots of Bashar. Over Lots of Bashar, yes. Yeah. And uh, uh, the Libyans were found to be involved in this. Well, there was a, uh, a film on this issue which basically pointed the finger at everybody except the Libyans. Uh, so um, we worked on that case sort of sorting out what was real and what wasn't real. So the, the Libyans had an obvious interest in doing that. During the Persian Gulf War in uh, 1991, the Iraqis, or after the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and up through the end of the war, they were putting out a tremendous amount of disinformation about what was going on. They were saying American troops were stationed in Saudi Arabia, that we were uh, building churches there, uh, bringing in alcohol. I never wrote this letter, <laughs> and it's all made up. And it was the Iraqis had a, an intelligence apparatus that would plant these stories and, and replay them, and uh, sometimes uh, to great effect. People would believe this stuff because some people wanted it. So the Iraqis, the Libyans, and the bad guys of the world, the Cubans had an active measures apparatus as well, the Nicaraguans. You know, you couldn't cover the globe. We focused on the Soviet Union, uh, which, which covered a lot of the territory in the 80s when I was working this issue. but. Basically, anything that was a problem for U.S. Embassy, if they wanted us to look into it, we did. You know, one of the uh, things that's gained some uh, legs overseas, and, and perhaps they've been deliberately created legs, is a, a I think a video made here uh, in this country called Loose Change. Yes. Are you familiar with that? I'm very familiar with Loose Change. This is. Um, what, now, what is what is the thrust? Though? It has the, to do yeah, with the thrust of Loose Change is that 9/11 was a, a U.S. government thing. Basically, that uh, the U.S. government wanted to, you know, launch a war in the Middle East, so we decided to attack ourselves and collect a tax uh, to, to, to make this uh, give us this, this opportunity. It's, it's total nonsense, but it, it has 
said it allows us, of a kingly and hipping look. A lot of people believe in this stuff, and it was made by a couple of college students. One guy, I think, who tried to get into film school in the uh, State University of New York and was turned down a couple times, got interested in 9-11 and researching it, and then became fascinated with these conspiracy theories and decided to make a film himself. And the film is really, um, it's, 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 it's pathetic, really, in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's gone through several iterations. People will point out the acquittal groups are not prosecuted as they are now. They're convicted as on this iteration. But they don't ever seem to have a complete
not for America, that's a term of friendship between us. So Saint Louis Philippe was the French monarch at a very precarious time for France. He had been born on October 6th of 1773, and Louis Philippe was actually a relative of Queen Louis XVI. But despite his royal blood, he was not a supporter of the revolution. He fought for the French army in the French Pyrenees, but he deserted when it became Louis's. In 1793, his father was one of the royal class that was executed during the Reign of Terror. And consequently, Louis Philippe lived in exile from his home country for much of his life. When Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated on both sides, Louis Philippe returned to France. He and King Charles VI abdicated after the July of 1830, despite some detractors telling him he was still disloyal. Those folks who remain with Legitimus believe that Charles VI's grandson succeeded him as his king. Yeah, and just for clarity on that point that about Napoleon being defeated both times and Louis Philippe returning to France, he came back after the first time, and then when things got a little dicey, he left again, went to England, and then when Napoleon was defeated again, then Louis Philippe returned to France. Uh, and got involved in all of the, the politics. Uh, he was called the Citizen King. He actually took the throne under a revised governing charter that actually limited the power of the monarchy. But he didn't really deliver on his potential to bring class equality and stability to France. He soon began ruling almost as though that limiting charter wasn't in place. He took a really autocratic approach to things. And instead of looking after the interests of the poor and the working class, as everyone had believed he was going to, instead was known to favor the wealthy in his decisions. Additionally, France hit extremely difficult economic times in 1830, which only fed the unrest in the country and the distrust of Louis Philippe. Many attempts were made on his life. Yeah, he had like eight assassination attempts, so uh, not wildly popular. But before we get into Louis Philippe's dealings with Mexico, uh, I would love to pause for just a moment and have a word from one of the sponsors of the show, Chicken. So summer is definitely still here at this point, and that probably means you are too busy grilling, hanging out in the sun, doing summery things uh, to do something more maybe boring, like go to the mall and go shopping. The problem is you still need to look nice, and that is why there is Trunk Club. They've taken the hassle out of shopping by shipping you a trunk of clothes that fit perfectly and make you look like a million bucks. What you do, you go to trunkclub.com slash history, and you answer some simple questions about your style, your preferences, your size, and then you are assigned an expert stylist who is going to talk to you about exactly what it is that you want from your clothing, and then handpick those clothes curated from the best premium brands that are perfect for you. You pick what you like, and just like that, you get a trunk full of handpicked clothes that arrives at your door, and you only have to pay for the clothes that you keep. Try them on, only keep the ones you want, only pay for what you keep. There's no ongoing subscription, no hidden charges, just great clothes. Right now, their service is completely free, and you can get started at trunkclub.com slash history. That's trunkclub.com slash history. While Mexico had been fighting the Texas Revolution, it had needed money, quite a bit of money, and it had borrowed a tidy chunk of that money from France. Lending out the money hadn't exactly made Louis Philippe very popular with his people, and in early 1838, there had been no repayment on these debts that had been accrued. France's king was
was fretful under, over his country's economic times, and he was growing very irritated about Mexico defaulting on the loan. And so it was at this time, a decade after that century club that we mentioned uh, was looted and destroyed, that Monsieur Fremonto, who had owned a pastry shop and had been trying for all those years to get money from the Mexican government, finally rolled his cheek to the French king about how his business had been collateral damage in Mexico's internal power struggle. Louis Felipe is sympathetic to Ramonto, so sympathetic that French diplomat Antoine-Louis de Paris asked all French citizens living in Mexico to itemize and invoice all their goods so that France would be able to clearly assess the damages that had been caused to their property by the ongoing fire. For Monsieur Ramonto's losses, France added 60,000 pesos to its demand on Mexico to hustle with repayment of those war loans. And in total, France called for 600,000 pesos from Mexico, which was a, a huge sum at the time. And in truth, the shop had actually only been valued at about 1,000 pesos. And this was a shop that was kind of a fancy display store. It was just something to serve up a little, you know, for the welcome, just as an example of how much money they had made. So that 60,000 pesos number is sometimes explained as having been arrived at as the sum that Fremonto could have expected from a lifetime of running that shop. But in fact, Mexico just did not have that kind of money at the ready. France also wanted a trade agreement with Mexico, so they had been efforts to actually establish one outside of the demand for repayment of these outstanding loan loans. But now both of these issues were lumped together, and that's when efforts to use this tiny period of a, of a bargaining chip for Mexico to extract the trade agreement were lumped together. So the Mexicans had their negotiating
So Santa Anna's leg did not stay in its fancy grave for very long. In 1844, just a couple of years after he became president that for that chunk of time, when public sentiment turned against Santa Anna, dissidents exhumed that leg yet again so they could second exhumation. And this time it was not to be given a better place. Instead, it was dragged through the streets of Mexico City on a rope while these people that had dug it up chanted, Death to the Cripple. Santa Ana was exiled from Mexico, but his life was nothing if not cyclical. In 1846, Mexico asked him to once again step in as a military leader in the Mexican-American War. When the United States made its surprise attack on his camp in 1847, Mexican general fled. But in his haste, he left behind his prosthetic leg, and the Illinois infantry that had mounted the attack took it. So... I mean, basically, Santa Ana lost the same leg twice in battle. Yes, one was his actual flesh and bone leg, and the other was a cork replacement, but he just couldn't hold on to that one leg. Uh, his captured prosthetic actually toured the United States, and then it went on display at the Illinois State Military Museum. Eventually, it was moved to a display at the Illinois State Capitol, and this has actually been an issue of contention between the U.S. and Mexico for years as Mexico has asked that the leg be turned over to their government repeatedly. But much as Mexico repeatedly refused that French chef's request for reimbursement, so has Illinois refused pleas to return the leg of the historic general. 
So as for Francis King Louis-Philippe, he did manage to turn France's finances around for a little while. France entered a depression in 1846, and another up revolutionary uprising followed in 1848. Louis-Philippe abdicated the throne on February 24, 1848, and he traveled under the name Mr. Smith and fled to England, where he lived until his death on August 26, 1850. He was the last king of France. And that's the Pastry War, as it's sometimes called, which I think it's a fun name, but it's such a misnomer because it really has very little to do with pastry. Even if uh, you want to focus on Monsieur Remontel and his shop, it kind of seems to me... <laughs> that it could have been almost anything at that point, since Louis-Philippe was really itching with some frustration at Mexico already. It could have been almost any other catalyst as well. For all we know, this could be called some other entirely different war, depending on who had given him the information that really finally sparked this, this series of demands to be made. So that is the pastry war, though, as it is called normally. It's fascinating. I didn't even realize... Um, <laughs> when I started researching it, that it was going to end up being the um, the whole Santa Ana thing. I didn't, uh, you know, realize that the dust-up over this pastry shop was so connected to the um, Texas and Mexico conflict and all of that stuff. So it's kind of one of those cool ones where a lot of things come together and kind of cohere. It helps connect the dots, I think, on the timeline of this story. And now I have a little bit of listener mail. And speaking of the timeline of history, it actually refers back to an episode that was before Tracy and I's time. But uh, the person who wrote this to us is kind of talking about it in the bigger scope of, like, the cool things that can come out of this podcast, which is so sweet of her. And her name is Holly, so I automatically like her. <laughs> so she says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I wanted to send you a postcard from one of the most interesting places I have ever been and thank everyone that has been part of this podcast for making me aware that it existed. I really enjoyed the podcast and just recently finished listening to every episode, both archived and present. And as I listen, I love to imagine visiting the sites and cities that are subject from week to week. And every host has done such a fabulous job of keeping me intrigued and excited enough to have started a bucket list of places that I would love to see. I live in Kansas City, so visiting most of the places on my list is kind of a dream at this point. Imagine how excited I was when I got to the episode about Cahokia. As soon as Sarah and Dabrina mentioned that this mysterious settlement was in Illinois, I abandoned everything that I was doing and jumped on the internet to find out how far it was from Kansas City. I was filled with joy when I discovered it was only four hours from my front door. My family and I had already planned our summer vacation for June, and we had chosen to go to Chicago as our destination this year. The map was telling me that Cahokia was almost directly between Kansas City and Chicago. It was like fate. Visiting the site took my breath away, and I plan on returning in the fall so that I can walk the trails around the mounds in cooler weather. I'm sorry this note is so long, but I wanted to let you know how much this listener enjoys the podcast. And although I know it's exhausting work, uh, the story is just one example of how you've informed and inspired me. Thank you for all you do. I love that. History comes alive. Uh it's Yay. so cool, and I hope that they had a great time in Chicago. As we know, that is one of my favorite cities. And I think I tweeted the other day that my best friend was at the field, and I was very, very jealous. Uh, so thank you so much, Holly, for sharing that with us. I like when, you know, you follow up on something that you've heard, and it ends up being a really cool experience. Hooray for history! If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history, pinterest.com slash history, and at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. 
We have a newish Instagram account, which you can find at Mixed in History. And if you would like to purchase history goodies, you can do so at mixedinhistory.spreadshirt.com. I feel guilty uh, that today's thing is named the Pastry War, and we didn't really talk about pastry very much. So if you would like to learn about pastries, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Uh, type in the words 10 pastries in the search bar, and you will get an article called The 10 Most Decadent Pastries Ever Conceived. It's not exactly a history article, but there's lots of delicious things. And like I said, I feel guilty that we named an episode The Pastry War, and we don't talk about delicious desserts at all. <laughs> so you can also visit us at mistinhistory.com. Uh, where we have all of those archived ev- episodes that our listener Holly talked about. And we also have show notes for every episode Tracy and I have worked on. So we do encourage you to come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and My guest today is Keith Melton. Keith Melton has been a member of our board since the founding of the museum. In fact, uh, Keith was one of the uh, resources, our our prime resources, in knowing both what we wanted to display at the museum as as well as acquiring the uh, materials that we did, the artifacts that we have. Uh, Keith does have the largest private collection in the world of espionage artifacts, spycraft items, and uh, we at the museum have really relied on Keith through the years, uh, often with determining the nature of a new artifact or uh, whether it was worth displaying or how to display it, in fact. Uh, Keith is a historian of intelligence literature, a commentator. He has done a number of TV specials. <coughs> he has written a number of books, perhaps one of the best known, uh, which is very popular here at the museum, is The Ultimate Spy, and another book that he has been working on with uh, Bob Wallace, the the Q, if you will, of CIA, uh, will be a book that will be coming out next May called Spycraft. Keith is joining us today for a very specific reason, and that is he is uh, doing a presentation at the museum today, this evening, on the subject of Trotsky. Trotsky figures in many people's minds as one of the people assassinated by or ordered to be assassinated by Stalin. In Mexico City, the the subject of Trotsky appears in many novels and movies and references. But you find on talking to people, and I find in looking at my own memory, most of us really don't know much beyond that. And uh, Keith has devoted himself in the last uh, year or so to doing more intensive research on Trotsky and developing the Trotsky story. And that's what he's here to talk about today. Keith, welcome. Uh, Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Let me ask you, and I think this would be very helpful uh, to our readers, who was Trotsky? Leon Trotsky was an intellectual giant of his era, and certainly, along with Lenin, the intellectual father of the Russian Revolution. And he was the founder of Pravda, the internationally known propaganda newspaper. He was the architect of the Red Army. 
He was the first commissar for military and naval affairs and later the commissar for foreign affairs. He was Stalin's ultimate rival and both could not succeed Lenin and it was this fact that made his fate inevitable. Of course, when we speak of rival uh, here in, in the United States of the 21st century, we think of political rivals and elections and, and uh, sort of the orderly transition of government. That was not the case then, was it? it it's fascinating that uh, we think in our, in our systems that ultimately intellect and fairness will triumph. Well, Stalin proved that even an intellectual giant can be toppled without, uh, if he's not aware of the ruthless nature of his opponents. And where Trotsky was smarter, Stalin was far more clever. And Stalin essentially was a minor figure during the Russian Revolution, but rose quickly to power through establishing and understanding the power of a bureaucracy. And he recognized that if he could be in the position to appoint the numerous mid-level servants that served this burgeoning Russian revolution in the new Soviet Union, that ultimately there was power in controlling the infrastructure. And where Trotsky had once been offered to become the secretary of the Communist Party, he declined because he wanted to spend his times writing. He believed in a permanent state of revolution. Where Stalin realized tactically, if you can if you control the body of the apparatus, ultimately the mind will succumb to the body's will. And so Stalin was in the position to appoint the key individuals and people that control the infrastructure. And eventually, he outmaneuvered Trotsky, so that when Lenin died, ultimately, Trotsky was on vacation. Lenin sent him a telegram and said, there's not time, you stay where you are on vacation, there's no need to even return to Moscow. And then ultimately used Trotsky's absence to discredit him in public opinion. The, the other hallmark of Stalin, of course, uh, at least as we know through history, recent history, is that he was ruthless. Uh, perhaps far more so than, than we can even imagine. Stalin was tactically brilliant. He was, he, no one ever referred to his intellect, but certainly people remember his cleverness. And he's often noted for stating that if you want to eliminate someone, don't attack the head. Eliminate all of their support apparatus so that eventually when you do take action, there's no way that they can have a reprisal against you. And he prized himself on the, on the strategic use of tactic, strategic use of force, understanding when an opponent was vulnerable and when they could be eliminated. But given that, given his tactic, his understanding of, of, of bureaucracies and force and eliminating opponent, why did he, and I, I assume that it was he, order and of course carry out the assassination of Trotsky? Well, he recognized very early that upon Lenin's death, there would only be room for one successor. So his maneuvering probably began as early as 1923 to outmaneuver Trotsky. Trotsky eventually, when he was discredited for not returning to Moscow for the funeral of Lenin, ultimately was sent into exile in 1928, and by 1929 was officially banned 
from the Communist Party and by 1932 lost his citizenship. So beginning in 1928 in Central Asia, Stalin began his life escaping from... Uh, beginning in 1928, Trotsky began his life escaping from Stalin. And if you look at the use of murder, Trotsky ultimately feared Stalin because, number one, Trotsky knew too much, and he knew how shallow Stalin's contributions had been in truly the revolution. And he recognized that if he continued to talk about this, if he discredited Stalin, ultimately he believed his writings, this permanent revolution, could be the beginning of something called the Fourth International, which in effect the, the Socialist Workers' Party that he founded in 1938. And though it was a dream to Stalin, it, rec it was truly a threat. And beginning as early as 1933, we know in writings now in the uh, Soviet intelligence that there was early work on how they might eliminate Trotsky. Because originally he went to Central Asia, from there to an island off the Turkish coast, then into a secret exile in Norway, then to a very public resort in the south of France. Then he made in 1937 this giant leap when he appeared in Mexico City at the personal invitation of President Cardenas, which had been arranged by two very famous painters, Diego Rivera, the muralist, and his pupil and wife, Frida Kahlo. So this was a giant leap, but as Europe was on the, the precipice of war, it also recognized a, a unique threat because Trotsky was publicly attacking the Soviet Union. At the same time, the Germans posed a threat, and so Stalin feared would there be perhaps a linkage between Trotsky and the Germans. And ultimately, his vanity required that Trotsky be eliminated. But was there, there must have been a sense on the part of Trotsky that he was um, safe in the sense that he was, he was so prominent, he was a celebrity of sorts, and he was in the company of many prominent leftists and, and in a country that was sympathetic to, to the, uh, the, the left generally, and the communists in particular. So I would have thought that one of the reasons for his move to Mexico City, where he was a public figure, really, was that uh, a sense of security. If you look back at the writings of, of Trotsky and his, his staff, they never had a night's rest that they were not fearful from the moment they left the Soviet Union. Because even though he was in exile, he saw all of those around him dying. Uh, he lost his secretaries, Rudolf Klimt, Erwin Wolf were both assassinated. His son, Leon Sadoff, died under circumstances that are still felt to be an assassination in Paris. Key members of his family were dying. He was warned on multiple occasions by former colleagues that had themselves escaped the Soviet Union in advance of the purges, that his compound was penetrated, his entourage had GPU agents in, and that ultimately he was going to be the target of an assassination. Uh, the, the saying that he would wake up each morning and say to his wife Natalia is, one more day, we've succeeded in outliving Stalin by one more day. Please tell us about the assassin. Well, the assassin is a fascinating figure. 
his name we know now was Ramon Mercader. He was operating under a Belgian cover by the name of Jacques Monard. And he was born in 1914. He was the wife of a Catalonian Spanish family, a beautiful mother, Caradeb Mercader. She herself had been embroiled in the, the passionate politics of the left in, in Spain and France in the 1930s and had been early supporters of the Spanish Civil War. They had fought passionately against the government. And her son was first a lieutenant and then finally became a major and a political commissar. He was wounded. She was wounded. And while she was in the hospital during the war, she met a man named Leonid Eitingen. And Eitingen is a giant in the history of Soviet intelligence. And he was running Soviet intelligence operations in the Spanish Civil War. And he met and began a love affair with this beautiful Caridad Mercader while she was recovering in hospital. And there recruited her into Russian intelligence and her son. And in 1937, both of them traveled to Moscow, where he underwent extensive sabotage and assassination training just to be ready in case. And it was this relationship that would ultimately be in place and under his direct control up to and including the assassination. But what's interesting and, and somewhat uh, a hallmark of Russian intelligence operations was that the original recruitment was not necessarily pinpointing him as an assassin. It is my belief that he was originally merely there as a potential source to get close to Trotsky, gather intelligence, and to be there if and in case he was needed. And that's, in effect, what happened. So, in other words, you're saying the original, the original of the uh, purpose of recruiting him and training him was to move him close to Trotsky, that is, uh, given his language capabilities, and then what... I, I take it he was not in Mexico at the time. He was trained in Moscow. He was brought to Moscow, trained, and then dispatched, but not with the idea of assassination initially. Is that what you're yes, saying? Right. The, the, the levels of the plot extend years in advance of the assassination. And often, perhaps in popular literature, it's seen that the assassin says, I want to here's a target, I'll go kill him next weekend. Where in reality, professional operations such as this often take place over a period of years. I mean, you can track the, the Trotsky assassination back to 1937 and the preparations that were done. And it started with, with the idea that, first of all, the Russian intelligence service had very little knowledge about Mexico City. So after Caridad Mercader, his mother, was trained in 37, she traveled to Mexico and in effect was treated, feted as a hero because she was this passionate, beautiful Spanish woman fighting for the ideals of communism, and she was feted by the Mexican Communist Party, and she established many contacts. When she went back, this was coincidental with the fact that Trotsky in January of 37 with his wife Natalia had moved to Mexico City and was living in the home of Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, the Blue House. And so this early intelligence gathering was necessary. The key point was that they decided they needed a way to get Mercader close to Trotsky. And Trotsky's entourage w w was vigilant but not prepared. 
they were aware of the threats but really didn't have the internal resources to, to do much about it other than just basic elementary security. So Russian intelligence under Eidington realized that to do it they needed to make an oblique approach. And how better than to do a false flag recruitment of a source close to the family. And they knew that there was a, a family in New York City, uh, an, an emigre, Russian emigre, by the name of Samuel Ageloff. And he had three daughters, two of, wh two of which were passionate Foxyites. One, Ruth Ageloff, and her sister Sylvia. And Ruth had been a secretary for Trotsky. And in the days before modern recording and transcription equipment, Trotsky didn't handwrite, and she would speak very eloquently, and a secretary literally would copy each word down. And Ruth Ageloff had been very effective in working as a secretary. She had a sister whose name appears in the Russian files under the code name of Old Maid, and her name was Sylvia. Very plain, not unattractive, but certainly not attractive, and who had never had a passionate love affair. And they went through a, a third party by the name of Ruby Weil. And Ruby Weil was a recruited source for Russian intelligence in New York City. And Ruby befriended Sylvia. Ruby rented a, a two-room apartment, had disposable income. They began to party, spend time together. And suddenly she announced there had been a death in her family, and she had come into a large inheritance. And what better than in the summer of 1938 that the two single women should go to Paris and there they could participate in the first international conference for the Fourth International, this new founding Trotsky movement of the Socialist Workers' Party. And they did. And on June the 29th, 1938, Ruby Weil introduces the old maid, Sylvia Ageloff, to this dashing, athletic, very handsome, and single Jacques Mournard, who was Ramon Mercader under his Belgian cover. And he was a wonderful dancer, a conversationalist. He knew the best restaurants in Paris, had disposable income, and he courted her. Finally, 11 days later, the consulate, the, the residentura in Paris, had to remove Ruby because she was simply in the way of this burgeoning love affair. And he seduced her and began a very intimate and passionate love affair that essentially answered Sylvia's dreams. This is all she had ever heard hoped for. And with that in place, eventually, when she returned to New York City, he followed some weeks later using a false passport, interestingly, that had been taken from one of the dead Canadian volunteers that had fought in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade during the Spanish Civil War. But the NKVD forgers misunderstood the English, American English and very sloppily misspelled his name. And it, instead of Frank Jackson, J-A-C-K-S-O-N, they spell it J-A-C-S-O-N. But he traveled to New York City under this false passport. When he's there, he said that he was going to open an import-export business in Mexico City and would soon be leaving. She said, how wonderful. My sister used to work for Trotsky. I'll go with you. I can serve the cause, and we can be together. 
And so it was this initial relationship that allowed the access. And in early January 1940, they arrived in Mexico City. Uh, she was serving as a secretary each day, and for the first six months, Mornard literally began to simply take her to work and pick her up each day. Let me uh, just uh, move ahead a little bit, and that is you've established how uh, Menard, or Mercadores, as, uh, with his other name, has gotten into Trotsky's entourage. Um, as you and I are speaking um, in, in, uh, in 2007, uh, we are aware of what appear to be a number of assassinations inside Russia, today's Russia, possibly ordered by the state, not entirely clear, and of Russians abroad. But in most of these cases, uh, the, as the, the assassin's hand or is, is concealed. And one of the remarkable things about the Trotsky assassination, even with this sort of um, very extensive preparation you've described, uh, was done in a very crude fashion, for heaven's sake. You can certainly describe it uh, for our listeners. But my interest would be in not only how it was done, but why it was done in such a fashion, and why the assassin's nation, the assassin's hand, uh, was made so clear. Well, interestingly, uh, the Russians, the Soviets, were very aware of this. And what is often forgotten these days is that Mercader was not the primary assassin. Their initial attack, there were two lines of attack that were conceived by Eidingen. The first was codenamed Khan, and the second was codenamed Utka, or Duck. And Khan was actually to be an organized raid on this fortified Trotsky compound that was being led and organized by Mexico's second most famous muralist, David Alfaro Siqueiros. And he, taking a, a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, organized 20 other Spanish Civil War veterans. And on the night of May the 23rd, they had, unbeknownst to the public, recruited a source inside his camp. And the source had been recruited by the New York consulate. And his name was Robert Sheldon Hart, the son of a very wealthy financier on Wall Street. And he had come to Mexico City in March of 1940 to serve as a bodyguard. We now know for the first time his code name was Amur, A-M-U-R. And he was prepared to give access on a night that he had guard duty to this organized group of raiders. And early in the wee hours on the 24th, they came to the compound. Robert Sheldon Hart was alone on duty. He let them in. Twenty men armed with pistols, incendiary bombs, and Thompson submachine guns stormed the compound. Hart takes them to the bedroom and using three points of entry, there were two common doors leading into Trotsky's bedroom and one window, they fired more than 300 rounds into the bedroom and the bed, and they miss. Because they had, were operating under the delusion that the bedroom was booby-trapped, as if someone would booby-trap their bedroom and not have to go in the middle of the night to the lavatory, but they never went in. And because of the arcs of fire from the three points of entry into the room, Trotsky simply crawled into the corner. His wife, Natalia, threw herself on top of them, and neither of them suffered an injury. Only the grandson 
was Siva, was actually had a small injury. And they literally, the last man, the last assassin came around and fired another